0: Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones.
1: Hi, welcome. This is Andrew Olson with the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm here with my good friend and co-host,
0: Roy Jones. Hey, Roy, good afternoon. Hey, good seeing you. I'm excited about this broadcast, Andrew. You know, we're getting ready to talk to a guy that has over the last 10 or 15 years worked at every level in the development process. I mean, from a donor relations manager to a program director to now a director of development. And I just love meeting folks and talking to folks that are well-rounded, have been able to roll up their sleeves at uh, multiple levels and make, make this stuff happen.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I'm excited for this to be our first podcast of 2020, because not only are we going to talk development, but we're going to talk leadership and how that impacts philanthropy. And, and so I'm, I'm really excited to introduce Adam Morgan here. Adam is the Senior Director of Development at uh, Phi Kappa Psi Foundation. He's a, a former chapter author of the Giving USA report and also authored two chapters in my book, 101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them. And so Adam, welcome to the show. Andrew, Roy, thanks very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Glad you're here, man. So let's jump right into it. The first thing I want to talk to you about, in your chapter on leadership, you give an example of, you talk about, you know, an organization that has a great mission, great programs, but they really can't ever kind of launch and scale philanthropically. And you compare that to an organization that might have mediocre messaging, sort of, you know, floundering program maybe, maybe but they're killing it in fundraising. Yeah. And you say that leadership is the difference. Yeah. Talk to us about that.
2: Well, I think... It's important for for us in the fundraising and the development sector to understand we're all leaders, right? We all have a boss, we all have an executive director, a director of development, a board chair. We have people who are in leadership positions, but especially those frontline fundraisers, they're all leaders. Their donors look to them, their, their program staff looks to them, the organization looks to them to be out there, they're raising money, communicating the mission, communicating the vision, communicating the need, doing all those things you need to raise money, and so, uh, the good people in leadership positions that I've seen, and, may, and maybe their their mission isn't the best mission, or maybe they're one of you know many organizations in an area who, who have a similar type of mission, the ones who empower their staff to go out there and be their own leaders are the ones who I've seen be some of the most successful fundraising organizations out there, um, giving their guys the tools, their guys and gals the tools, the, the freedom, the flexibility, do whatever it is that, that is needed to be done.
1: So it sounds like, what you're saying is the leaders who are willing to empower their people and not not necessarily need to hold the reins tight tend to be more successful is that what you're saying yeah exactly
2: uh, i mean a lot of us have worked and do work for small shops and we know the work gets spread around and everyone has to to pitch in and do a little bit of everything but you know letting some of that organizational management stuff the administrative <laughs> stuff giving that to the administrative and the organizational people and letting the fundraisers go out there and fundraise. I think we have a lot of a uh, tendency to ask our fundraisers to do, to do a lot and we all have small budgets. And so we all ask them to do their own, you know, bookkeeping, expense reports, mileage requests, time off, all those sorts of things. But when you add up sort of where a fundraiser's time is best spent, it's out there communicating and connecting with donors. And so allowing them to do that. It
0: really is interesting when we when we have a, a great major gift fundraiser. That so often we try to to push her into into a management role, <laughs> and we probably lose money doing that. But it's it interesting; I hadn't thought about that before. But it really is a a, a a challenge for the industry, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've had some
2: colleagues and peers who were, like you said, were, were stellar individual major gifts officers, and then because they, you know, society or their career path dictates, oh, you should now become a director of major gifts. You should lead a team. You should do this. You should do that they step into a management role, and through no fault of their own, because they're not bad people, it's not that they don't try, but we either don't train them to, to be in that new role, or we expect them to also carry their 100-person major gifts caseload, and now manage a team of five or six major gifts officers. You know, we have to look at where that line is, and, and give, give the proper support you know, where it's needed.
1: Or if we're being honest, they're 500 to 1,000-person. Caseload, <laughs> yeah, that we yeah. might see in some organizations, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, something else you you talked about uh, in the chapter. You said that you talking about leaders who who are more successful when they're willing to admit that they don't know something. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like that's something we run into quite a lot. And, and it's not, you know, it's it's certainly not something that's unique to the nonprofit sector. It's human yeah. nature, right? That yeah. that you know, for some people, it's just harder to admit when they don't know than others. Talk to us about what your experience has been in that related to that issue and and how you see it impacting someone's ability to lead an organization.
2: Yeah, this was something that was really hard for me to to learn personally because, you know, as a new leader and a new manager, you want to be seen as uh, having all the right answers. And I think it actually took me getting married and, and, and spending time with my wife and her asking me a question and then, you know, wanting to seem like I knew what I was, talking about and giving the wrong answer, and then that wrong answer can lead you down a bad road. And you quickly <laughs> realize that, man, this would have been a lot easier if I had just said, you know, I don't know, but give me five minutes to Google it. Um, so or, organizationally, you know, I've been in roles and, and worked with and been a part of organizations where I've seen that sort of instance multiply, have a multiplier effect, and that, you know on the small scale you just you lose time you ask a question to your your supervisor or somebody and then you get an answer and then because it's given to you by a person of authority a person that you trust uh, or a person who frankly you just have to listen to because they're your boss then you go out and execute on it and then you you know find out that it's wrong as a fundraiser you can lose face significant face by telling a donor a major gift donor or a planned gift donor you know the wrong answer to a question and then having to go back and walk that back you know that's an opportunity to lose trust to lose face to lose support and then the grander scale i think if this is a pattern that you're seeing uh, with your supervisor or someone and you continuously get the wrong information from them um, and not just oh i got this date wrong it was really the next day or, or you know but big big stuff you know it starts to erode the organizational culture a little bit uh you have seen that relationship turn really bad because then there's trust loss internally um, but externally, you're still trying to portray uh, a united front. You're still trying to fundraise for a mission that you probably care deeply about. And so then it becomes personal in nature because I think a lot of the best fundraisers do fundraise for organizations that they're passionate about. So, so it can become a slippery slope, I think.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's interesting. We, we have a, a saying that, that we like to banter around that, you know, the way you experience someone inside your organization is exactly the way that someone outside is going to experience them, right? The, yeah, you, you can't. There, this this myth that you can be two different people is just not true, right? Sure. So if we have this tendency to to want to be seen as as knowing everything and and not ever being wrong, and and that leads us to the place of making incorrect statements and and giving answers that are wrong, not only does that erode the culture internally? But I think to your point, it stands to, to really set a risk of eroding trust with, with donors, with other, you know, institutional funders, with partners in the community. I mean, it, it really could set you up for failure. I, I'm yeah. curious, how do we avoid that? Well, I mean, the only thing I'll say before we get to that
2: question is I've seen, I've even seen gift officers feel the need to portray to a donor that they know everything, mm-hmm. which, you know, it can also be just as dangerous because I think, you know, more you get into major gifts and some you work with some experienced donors. Donors realize that you know the fundraisers know a lot about the organization. They don't know everything, and so it's okay to say you know I don't I don't know that, or and let me ask our our program expert. Let me ask the expert on it and get back to you, or maybe even set up a meet. Take that as a chance to set up a meeting, you know, with those experts. So, but how do we avoid it? I think like I mentioned for me, it was it was a learn trial by fire, and some of that is going to be the case, but having the self-awareness to maybe take a step back and say, uh, you know, it's okay to not know everything. I mean, I certainly don't expect my boss to know everything in the world. And so why would, you know, why would they expect that to know that of themselves? So I think it starts with a little little bit of self-reflection and a little bit of personal awareness, being able to take a step back and see and just you know, pause on things and take an extra minute to think about it.
1: So Roy, I'm curious to get your perspective on this. When you think about C-level executives that you've coached and engaged with, you know, that can be a hard conversation for a, a more junior person, a frontline fundraiser who reports to a, an executive director to have and to, to really, you know, as gently as possible, call them on the fact that, hey, we, we have to behave differently in this respect and we can't just take the, the position that we're always all knowing. What, what's your experience there and what do you recommend?
0: Yeah, I mean, Adam's exactly right. I mean, it really is about transparency. And I have found as well, now you're, you're talking to an old man here who will turn 61 years old here in a few weeks. And I have found that uh, that especially dealing with uh, with younger people, uh, you know, I've got three sons that are millennials. And so often in the work environment, uh, we forget <coughs> about just how these different age groups process. And, and, and I fall into the trap of, of thinking I'm dealing with uh, people that process like I do for my generation. Yep. And, uh, and, and, and so often, you know, the people are really hitting their stride in the fundraising development world start doing it in their 30s and, and 40s, you know, and, and 20 years my junior. And I have found I get a lot more by asking questions, getting their opinion before I get mine. <laughs> I don't want to call it a millennium challenge. We we <laughs> everybody's always dumping on the millennials, but you know, it, it, it is part of our marketplace and it is part of, you know, you talk about frontline fundraisers. I mean, for the most part, a lot of millennials are in that space right now. And finding ways to communicate with them, to allow them to, you know, have input, direction, and and provide you their thoughts is really, really important. You know, it, it's it's common sense in a lot of respects, but but for some old salty dogs like me, it's taken me a bit to, to learn that.
1: I think you're going to need a t-shirt that says old salty dog. I think that, <laughs> yeah. that, would, be, that would be fitting. Just saying you might get that for Christmas next year. <laughs> well, no,
2: I, Roy, that's a, you know, a great point. One of the things I've studied a lot of, and uh, you know, I was never in the military, but I've studied a lot of military leadership and military history. And, and one of the lessons I picked up from those studies was um, you know, if you've got a group a military group around and they've got to come to a decision and they're asking for opinions. One of the things I've learned is they'll, they'll often start with the most junior person there and ask what their opinion is and then go up from there. So that way they get sort of an unbiased opinion from the bottom up instead of starting. And I think a lot of times what we do and some other cultures do is we start with the top and we ask, you know, what's the executive director's opinion? What's the board chair's opinion? What's the director of development's opinion? And then a lot of people don't want to contradict that right? They don't want to be seen as going against the flow or against the grain. And so, you know, they just, they may think like, well, that's that answer is not right because I'm the one who's putting together the mail appeal. And I know that we're mailing to this segment and not that segment, but you know, they don't want to speak up and either look bad or, or make their, their boss look bad. So yeah.
0: Yeah. Group, group thing can really yeah. lead you astray fast, can it? Yep.
1: Yeah. And Jack Welch, the former CEO of, of General Electric, he used to say, you know, when I got a problem, I don't want to talk to the senior vice president of that division. I want to talk to the guy running the machine Mm -hmm. because he's so close to it. He's going to be able to tell me what the actual problem is. So Mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. So let's put it for a second. Let's talk about you talk in the chapter about emotional intelligence and why it's uh, important to leadership, particularly in our sector. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, I get, I think for the audience, give a quick uh, synopsis of how you see EQ uh, working in a leadership role and what you've seen related to how people can kind of develop that muscle. Yeah, so I think, you
2: know, emotional intelligence EQ is very important because it's, our, it's one of the things that creates our ability to interact with others and to read a social or a personal situation and understand what our response to that situation should be. Did, did they just make a joke and I should laugh? Or is that a serious comment and I should dig deeper into it to see if, you know, if they're okay, if everything's okay at home? you know, the whole, you know, maybe this is a millennial thing, right? But the whole, you know, you leave your you leave your personal life at home and you go to work really doesn't happen anymore. I and mean, we're so connected to our house. I mean, we can text with our family all day, we can get emails all day. So we know when something at home is going on and we take that into work. So that adage, I think, doesn't hold up anymore. So, and that's maybe a little bit off of here, but I think EQ is important because it gives a leader that ability to sort of hone in on the personal side of the relationship with their employees and, and see, you know, what's going on in their life. I mean, a leader is, is more than just, you know, a person's boss at work, they're, they're, they're a friend, they're their mentor, they're a confidant, they're a coach, um, they're a teammate in many respects. So they have all these different roles that go into being a good leader and uh, being able to, you know, understand a social situation, adjust accordingly, read it correctly, I think is all very critical to what, to what leadership is.
0: Yeah, it's, you, know, the, the, you know, IQ is one thing, but EQ, you know, just really plugging in. And I have found that makes a good, a really good fundraiser as well. Um, you know, if you've got somebody that has the great EQ skills, they know how to ask questions. They know how to really listen. You know, those kind of skills, I, I believe, can be learned. With some, yeah. some people, it's innate, but I believe those emotional listening skills can be learned.
2: Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, the, the book, Emotional Intelligence 2.0, uh, is a great resource for that. And it is one of the things they say, you know, you can actively work to increase your EQ over time, whereas your IQ is your IQ. And you have it from when you're six or seven on through the rest of your life. But your EQ, you know, you can work on that. You can increase it. You, so I think that's great.
1: Glad we can increase one of them because I'm not sure I got the yeah. EQ process. <laughs> 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 hey, Adam, you talk about some of the different challenges faced by leaders who are leading in large organizations and mm-hmm. small organizations. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to know what you think the one or two biggest differences are, but I also want to know what challenges you think they they face similarly.
2: And it's a great question. So currently I'm at a small organization and I am directly prior to that, I was at a very large organization. And I thought, right, moving to a small organization, i would be able to you know make decisions and, and decisions would be made more quickly because i ran into this you know at large organizations it takes time to make big decisions it just takes time to make big decisions whether you're at a small organization or a big organization it just takes time to make big decisions i mean you need buy in from donors and board members and you know the executive director and whoever your partners are on a project so that doesn't really change and i thought that was interesting and makes a lot of sense now that I'm on both sides of it. You know, I think one of the biggest challenges to small organizations is always going to be the staff issue. You know, at a small shop, a one-person, two-person, three-person shop, there's never going to be enough hands on deck to do everything you want to do. And then you're going to be limited to the skills of who you have. So if you don't have a good copywriter, if you don't have a good editor or a good graphic design person, you're either going to need to find volunteers who can maybe help you in those areas, outsource it if it comes to that, And so those challenges sort of change on a small shop, but I think the personnel thing is always gonna be the biggest. You know, you're gonna have to work with what you have and you're never gonna have enough people to do everything you wanna do. Vice versa on the big side, well, you may have all of these resources. You may have a dedicated graphic designer and a copywriter and all these different things, but you still have to then get all of those people to work together because then now personalities come into play, other projects come into play, what could be a priority for you as a major gift officer is not necessarily a priority for the graphic designer who's working on the invitations for the gala event in six weeks, right? <laughs> so trying to fit all of that together, and now you're talking about workflows and project plans. And so while you know, one side looks at the other and says, oh man, they have it good, you know both sides have their challenges, and, and it's just about how uh, you adapt to that challenge just to
1: manage it a- <laughs> Sounds like it's just di- different shades of craziness, huh?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And the next thing I, I want to talk about is I just want to get your input on how you see the leader, the, the senior leader's role in developing culture in the organization.
2: Uh, it's critically important. I think culture is one of those things where it's going to affect every aspect of the organization from, you know, the time you show up to work, I mean, to physically, to the what time you get to work, to how you enjoy your day, to how your fundraisers are out there talking about the organization. I think one of their their biggest jobs is to sit back and think strategically about, you know, what is our culture? You know, as a nonprofit, do we have a culture of philanthropy? You know, are we actively um, promoting a culture of giving back, not just to ourselves, right, but to our community? Uh, are we taking good care of our people within the best means that we have possible to do so? I think, you know, in this day and age with being able to work remotely, the technology that's available, almost every fundraiser I know has a laptop and a tablet and a cell phone and a video camera. So there's no reason why, you know, fundraisers shouldn't be given and, and all employees really shouldn't be given some of those easy culture fixes to be able to work from home or take care of personal needs as they're able to, it within reason, right? Like we're not talking about an abuse of, of someone's goodwill or their system, but um, I think culture stemming from a senior leader is is critically important. If that senior leader is going to send an email at midnight, is it the expectation that they receive a response, or is it the expectation that you know, hey, this is just how they work, but you don't need to respond until the next day? Uh, same thing with with work over the
1: weekend. So that's that's really interesting. I, I'm I'm curious. You know, I've been guilty of that myself. I, I work weird hours sometimes. You know, I, I get up pretty early, so you know, it wouldn't be completely out of the norm for me to be sending emails at say four in the morning, right? And I have three little kids, so I take time when I get it. So if I get a little bit of time uh, late at night on a on a Saturday or you know midday on a Sunday, I might try to crunch through as many things as I can. Uh, so I've I've been very guilty of being that guy who sends out you know the 12 or 15 emails over the weekend or, or super early or super late. As far as sort of setting the tone, what, what do you think about the idea? I mean, do you think that's something that's that's essential enough that, that a conversation should be had with staff that, hey, this is how I work because it's most effective uh, for me in the organization, but I don't expect you to do that. And, and then kind of a second step to that is I wonder what the behavior modifications need to be for the leader to truly live not expecting that from their people?
2: No, I mean, I think that's a great question. And, I, and like anything else, I mean, it's going to come down to the culture of the of the individual organizations. I would say it's probably not a bad thing to set that expectation and say like, hey, I I work weird hours. I, I get up early and I like to knock out my emails first thing when I wake up because I'm spending time with my family from you know 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. And so I'm not looking at stuff. So I'm going to wake up, clear that out and move on. And I don't expect, response until you know you're in the office and you're settled i think that's absolutely reasonable to have Uh, and then as far as behavior modification i think going back to technology you know we work in in a wonderful era now where you can save messages in a draft folder you can schedule emails to go out at a, a specific time so you can use some of the tools that you have so if you i think some of it is going to be incumbent on a leader to say like hey you know i know if i send andrew this email at midnight and he's awake. He's gonna feel the need to respond to it. So I didn't have the conversation with Andrew. That's like Andrew. I mean, like, don't worry about it. Just worry about it when you get to the office or whatever. At The same time I can, or I can say, okay, let's let's schedule this to go at at six a.m. or eight a.m. You know. So I think there's a there's a give and take there.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things I've done, and of course, I have one of these personalities. You know, I'm a a former college football offensive lineman, a former. College All-American heavyweight. I get really loud on the phone. <laughs> I, I I have clear opinions about things, and I have to remind people, pull people in, listen. Um, you have to confront me. You, you have to challenge me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. But I expect to be challenged, and, and and I have to remind them of that frequently. And 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 I have to remind myself of that. So I have to tone it down. I have to get where you know, where, where they are emotionally and tone wise and, and all that kind of thing. So it's, uh, depends on the leader, but you know, you really do have to, to pull it out of them and to, and to let them know that you expect to be challenged. And if you're not challenged, that's a problem.
1: And I think, Roy, this is a, that's an interesting point you made because you do this really well, but I think the second step to, to telling someone that I expect to be challenged is not being defensive when they challenge you. right. That's right. Mm-hmm. So I've been in so many scenarios where someone says, oh yeah, challenge me. I want to, you know, I'm open, blah, blah, blah. And and then you go in and you you do challenge them in, in, a, in a respectful way. And immediately it becomes a defensive posture. And then you get the positioning of, well, I'm the leader and this and that. In the 10 or 15 years we've known each other, I've never experienced you to behave that way. And, and you know, the, the team that we work with now, they recognize that, Wow. Yeah. When Roy says he's open to being challenged, he really is open to being challenged. You know? Right. But there are so many leaders, I think, who just aren't comfortable enough in their own skin to to say those words, and then also to live it out. And I think so. That's for me. I think one of the biggest challenges in this respect is you know not just saying the words, but how do you how do you live it? How do you live the response? So that even like the the look on your face when someone does challenge something you say doesn't communicate wow, I really didn't want you to say that, you know, Mm. I don't have an answer for it. It's just an observation.
0: Yeah. And I I think that's right. And it's, it's being a good listener, you know, coming back to the original point that, that Adam made is that, is that, you know, being transparent, being real and being the first to admit when you blow it, you know, they need to, they need to see that and they need to see you're not perfect and and that you have to depend on them and I tell you, it makes a big difference when they save your bacon a time or two. For sure. Mm-hmm. You know, you really start to build build trust that way. You know, you, you mentioned the that military strategy of, of starting from the lowest ranking officer or NGO and, and ask, soliciting opinions and, and moving up, you know. And I saw something on the internet this week, uh, a quote by George S. Patton. If everyone is thinking alike, then someone is not thinking. And... Um, and, you know, and again, we, we have to remind ourselves of that. That's You know, diversity is so important, not just not just ethnicity, but diversity of opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're not always going to be right, and we're not always going to agree, uh, but the best decisions get made in that kind of diversity.
1: Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Hey, Adam, follow-up next question, not just around culture setting, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious to get your point of view on what a leader's role is, is in, in philanthropy for an organization. You know, we're, uh, and, I, and I asked that, and you probably live this as well, but you know, having worked with over a thousand organizations at this point, I can name off plenty. I won't, but I can name off plenty mm-hmm. where the, you know, the senior most person in the organization says something like, no, 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 I don't get involved in that. That's why I hired this guy.
0: Mm-hmm. That's
1: why I hired her. She does the fundraising, mm-hmm. which yeah. I think is really dangerous. Ta- yeah. Talk to us about your totally. perspective on that.
2: So it's it's critically dangerous. I think you know I, in the book I say you know we've probably heard the saying everyone is a fundraiser, right? So CEO, executive director, board members to the administrative assistant, and I mean that that you need to look at approach it from a fundraising mentality, right? The a customer service oriented mentality. Some organizations are going to work with uh, a client base, you know, for their programs that that are not going. These clients are probably not going to eventually become donors. Some organizations are going to work their program based, their client base probably do have the potential to be donors. We should be treating all of those people the same because we never know who's talking to who. We never know when a donor is going to walk into a program to do an audit and say like, you know, how how you treat your people is indicative of who you are as an organization. So I say that to say that if you're an executive director or CEO, you know, fundraising is is, is absolutely part of your job via your job description because you're in charge of the operational organizational budget for that organization. So wouldn't you want to have your hands on the pulse of some of your top donors or partners or income generating revenue streams if it's not, you know, donations? Through so my work with the Lee School of Philanthropy and the Giving USA, we did a lot of research and you have probably most of us have seen those charitable giving reports come out every year. And we see, oh, it's great. You know, charitable dollars are rising and rising and rising and we're well over the $400 billion mark. But the flip side of that is that we have less and less donors giving that money. And so on some level, our pool of charitable dollars from individuals is shrinking. And if I'm the leader of an organization, uh, I want to know that my top 50 donors are well taken care of. I want to have a personal relationship with them to know that you know, if something happens in their life that we are aware of it, that we're, you know, with them alongside them on it, um, that if it changes their ability to contribute to our organization and giving year, we know that as soon as possible so that, you know, from the operational standpoint, we can make an adjustment to that, but also so that we can just be a good friend to them because they've been a good friend to us. And so your frontline fundraisers who have those relationships are great, right? That's where it all needs to start but it all needs to trickle up to the top because that's where the last level of accountability is going to be. And then the other side of it is we've probably all worked with major gift owners who want to have that access. Hmm. They look at an investment that they're making in an organization. They have a question about a new program. Yeah, they don't mind going through their, their gift officer to make a transaction, to get an update, to schedule a meeting. But when push comes to shove, like they're going to want to be able to call the top person at the organization, uh, especially if they're connected with the board in some way. And have that opportunity so for that first call to be a call of crisis or a call of need on part of the donor uh i don't think is, is a great way to set yourself up so having a pulse on that and whatever that looks like and some people recommend that each c-suite person should carry a small you know portfolio of donors and some should just say that they should be involved in the stewardship process i think a lot of that is just going to depend on the organization the personalities there but yeah they it's critical that they're involved in the process
0: that all begins with saying thank you. And you know I mean that's the thing that I try to push across the whole organization is I need you to help me say thank you. You may not need to be the person to make the ask, but you can sure tell people thank you and and you know and demonstrate the impact they're having what they're giving. And, yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you know program managers as well as the, the people you serve, teaching philanthropy through the whole organization, it, it's not easy, but it absolutely can can happen.
1: All right, man. Hey, uh, I know we're getting close on time. So I got one more question for you before we let you go. I've always been, I'll say frustrated and and quite honestly, shocked at how few nonprofit organizations have a formalized succession plan in place. Mm. And we know it's critical. Mm -hmm. um, And there are plenty of examples about it. Talk to us about what you see in that space, why you think it doesn't happen as frequently as it should. And and what organizations should be doing to, to make sure they're prepared there.
2: Yeah, so I think the first steps, so I'll start with that first, is just at the bare minimum having one for your chief officer and your board president. Because um, you know, an illness can happen, a job opportunity can happen, something that can happen that's totally unforeseen and in no you know way is meant, you know, in any poor reflection of anything, but things happen, right? It's life. And so having a succession plan for those top two individuals you know your board president uh and your chief executive whether it's you know whatever that looks like and keeping it up to date for each person you know we've seen things where where transition happens and you dust out the succession plan and it's got an old board president's name on it and an old executive director's name on it and that's that's no good anymore so i think that the very least mitigates the top end of the risk and then you know how you the other risks are, are, you know, if you don't have them for gift officers, for development directors, you risk loss of revenue. You uh, And this is equally on the program side. If you run a program and you don't have a plan in place for a program director or a critical component of that program runs away, if you have a soup kitchen and your cook leaves, how are you feeding people the next day? You know, a lot of us rely on temp organizations for administrative support when that happens, but there's not really... I guess there are some organizations out there that do that at a director level, but knowing who you have on your roster and your organization and what roles they can come into. More importantly, being proactive with some of those people and saying, you know, what roles do you want to go into? How can we help you grow into these roles? Making them uh, proactively a part of that succession plan is, I think, a great way to keep retention in your organization because, you know, if you have someone, right, if you are an executive director, development director, and retirement's on your horizon, Uh, or a job change is on your horizon, frankly, in the next few years, there's no harm in talking to your team about, you know, where do you want to go with your career? What do you want to do? Do you want to, would you be interested in this role or the next role or what does that look like? I think most people, maybe not some millennials joking. (laughs) Most people have the expectation that it takes a few years to get there and that, you know, uh, as long as they know they're in consideration back to this transparency thing, as long as they know what their options are, as long as you're honest with them about what their options are, be a lot likely to stick around and see where that goes.
1: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. You know, it's interesting. I I remember when I, um, when I was working on the front lines of the fundraiser, we used to have a a rule, I guess you could say that we wanted to have at least every one of the top 100 donors. We wanted them to have a three deep relationship with the organization. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. whoever their, their assigned fundraiser was plus somebody in the C suite, plus ideally a board member mm-hmm. or a high-level volunteer. I don't know, Roy, Roy did you guys have that kind of well, system set up
0: anywhere? We do. And, you know, it's hard for people to, to agree with it until they see it. But you can <laughs> never thank a donor too much. Yeah. And it's not unusual in the programs I've been involved in that a donor, especially somebody that's making a, a five-figure gift or larger, they're going to get thanked six or seven times in lots of different ways. And so, so often we think, "Oh, we can't have more than one person contacting the donor, and that's just a mistake. Um, now, if we had seven people all making ass, yeah, that would be a mistake. <laughs> but uh, and I'm sure uh, it happens in some yeah. ways so. <laughs> but but just loving on people, man, you cannot do too much of that.
1: yeah. Absolutely. Hey, Adam, appreciate you being here to talk with us about leadership and philanthropy. Appreciate your contribution to to the book. If somebody wants to uh, reach out to you after listening to this podcast, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? I'm on LinkedIn and my email is amorg005
2: at gmail.com. So that's amorg005 at gmail.com or Adam Morgan on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. Awesome, man. Thanks again for being here. Thanks guys. Thank
0: you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, brought to you exclusively by Newport One. Newport One can make a difference in your fundraising so that you can change the world. You can always reach us at podcast at newportone.com. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.